Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Hear now the Gospel of the Lord. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. I guess it's appropriate to say Happy Advent, right? Does anybody know this is a this is a, a quiz this morning on holidays? You know, a holiday is the two words holy and day put together. So there was a holiday we celebrated this week on December 6th, and it's not Hanukkah. National Cookie Day? Day? No. But that would be good. That would be a good holiday. It was? Was it? Okay. Actually, yes. It was the Feast of St. Nicholas on December 6th. Thursday, December 6th was the Feast of St. Nicholas. It It was a saint day in the Orthodox Church. I know you guys were all out celebrating this week, and that's why everybody looks so tired this morning. Yes. Where are you celebrating? Good, yes. So somebody was, anybody celebrating? That's good to know. Anybody celebrating the Feast of St. Nicholas? Yeah, we got some folks in the back. Great, all right. So a lot of people don't know that St. Nicholas, who later becomes Santa Claus, was a real person. He was the Bishop of Myra in the uh, fourth century, and he was actually... um, what he was known for was that he was, had wealthy parents, and both his parents died, and he took all of his inheritance, and he gave it away to the poor and joined the church. He later became the bishop, a bishop in the church at Myra, and he was actually debating in the Council of Nicaea. Some of you scholars will remember the Council of Nicaea. They were debating the Trinity in the Council of Nicaea, and evidently he got, the debate got so heated that St. Nicholas walked across the room and slapped another person debating on the Holy Spirit. His name was Arius. And so then they actually put him in jail for slapping another whole, whole, you know, priest in the, in the, whatever they called it back then. I don't think they called it the conclave, but, but they, he slapped this and he was put in jail for it and stripped of his uh, Episcopal robes and garb. He was later reinstated because his side of the debate won <laughs> on the Trinity. <laughs> And uh, Arius was considered, you know, at, the, at that time, a heretic. And so he was, he's known for slapping a heretic, as well as giving all his money away to the poor. There are other stories about him. One story, though, that, that ties into Christmas 
is that there was a, a family in poverty and the children were about to be sold into slavery. And so what he did was he tossed in some gold coins into a window. He didn't come down the chimney. He didn't jump in the house, but he threw some gold coins in there. And some think that it fell in the shoes. And so we got some of that into the tradition, shoes, socks, those things. And so we get some of those traditions. But part of my question is, how do we go from St. Nicholas to Santa Claus? How do we get there? How do we get this guy? <laughs> right? So what happened? Well, this is actually the first advertisement by Coca-Cola. Uh, notice that if you watch Coca-Cola ads, they always have Santa Claus in them. If you've noticed that, that's part of their marketing. And so in 1931, this ad ran in a publication called the Saturday Evening Post in 1931. Anybody remember that issue that came out? Yeah, right. So this wasn't the 4th century. This was 1931, 20th century. But they ran this advertisement. And so this was the artist's rendition of Santa, the, the first time we see Santa Claus like this. And he took inspiration from a famous poem called The Visit of St. Nicholas, right? Everybody knows that, right? A Visit from St. You all know that poem? Twas the night before Christmas. It later got changed, right? Just like Santa. And so it became St. Nicholas, became Santa Claus. Also, there was some uh, inspiration from Father Christmas in a Dickens Christmas Carol that also tied in here. And so we come up with this idea of Santa Claus. In 1942, Coca-Cola introduced another part of their ad, and they added Sprite Boy, <laughs> who was an elf. I don't have a picture of that, but it's a, who was an elf, right? So think about this. So why, why is Pastor Matt talking about this? What I'm suggesting is that marketing, when they started to put Santa Claus together with selling products, they started to, the marketers, the, the advertisers caught on to something. And they've been using it ever since. Since 1931 until today, Santa Claus has been helping sell stuff. Think about it. So what was once a holy person, a bishop of Myra, a, 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 a person who helped the poor, who slapped heretics, has now become the advertisement of our world and of our nation and of our Christmas. This Christmas, we will spend an estimated $1 trillion just on Christmas. $1 trillion. What's the national debt today? I know it's over $1 trillion, but that might make a pretty big dent in it. Right? So think about all the spending and the consumerism that goes on with Christmas because of advertising and how a lot of our understanding of Santa Claus and traditions around that have come from consumerism and marketing, not from the holy day of Christmas, but from somebody else who wanted to make money. <laughs> now, why do we spend so much money at Christmas? Have you ever do you ever think that? Probably you don't think it right now. You'll probably think about it like a week after Christmas or when the credit card bills come. You'll say, why did I spend so much money? Well, uh, there's a guy, his name is Dreslin uh, Pralik, who is at, uh, does research on consumer behavior at MIT. He says that when we, we purchase something, when we spend money, we actually have rules in our head. Like, like how many people have said to themselves, I'll never buy anything if it's not on sale? Anybody? 
said that? Is that a rule, right? You have that in your mind? How, how many of you who said that that was a rule that you have went and paid full price for something, right? Yes, you have, right? So what he says is when you have a rule like that about spending, you end up breaking it, and what happens is you pay what he calls a moral tax. He says you're actually taxing your own morality when you do that, but your desire to spend and to, to get something overcomes that moral tax that you feel inside, so you go ahead and buy it because you're trying to feel better about the spending, and so you rationalize and justify it. In one experiment, though, they found that what's happened in our society and why spending continues to get higher and higher, especially at Christmas, is that it's about credit cards. Um, they found that consumer behavior changes when you use a credit card. So, for example, they ran an experiment. This is, remember, this is Massachusetts, so there are a lot of Boston Celtic fans there. They auctioned Celtic tickets to a sold-out Celtics game. They auctioned them, and they told the one group they auctioned to could only pay cash, and the other group could only use a credit card. And it turns out that when the auctions were done, as they ran these multiple times, that the people who paid cash versus the people who paid with credit cards, the people who were paying with credit cards doubled their offers, were twi offered twice as much as the people who paid cash. Because what is going on with the credit card is that the credit card delays our moral tax. See that? Because I don't feel the moral tax when I use my credit card. I'm going to feel it when I use cash, but I'm not going to feel it as much when I use my credit card. They've also found that if they put a credit card logo on the front of a catalog for, for merchandise, that sales from that catalog will go up because of the credit card logo on the magazine. Because when we see that, it's like, he said, it, when we see the credit card logo, it's like waving a hamburger in front of a hungry person. So there's something going on. Something going on with our behavior and our consumerism, right? Another thing they've learned, and this will be the last thing I'll tell you, and we'll move on, but it's important for us to understand. We spend to feel in control. We spend money to make ourselves feel like we're in control. When's the most out-of-control month of your life? Would it be this month, right? Isn't this the month where we get stressed out and we feel like things are out of control? And so maybe part of our spending is to actually feel a sense of control during a time and a season of our lives that we feel out of control or we feel stressed out. So they've discovered that some of our spending has to do with when we feel like things are not going well that we'll go spend. We call that retail therapy. Retail therapy. Interesting how we've come up with that term. So something's going on inside of us. So when we feel out of control, we want to take control. Huh. You know anybody like that? You know anybody who feels out of control and wants to take control? How about Joseph? What was Joseph doing as we heard the gospel reading this morning? What was he thinking? He's like, I, this, this is out of my control. My, my fiance is pregnant, and I had nothing to do with it. So he's feeling what? what how is Joseph feeling? Joseph is feeling out of control. He's got no control. Here's the thing I've learned about control, and I'm still learning. There's a lot of stuff I can't control in life. Have you noticed that? I can't control what other people say or think or do. But I can control what? What I do, right? What I say, how I respond, how I react. 
So what Joseph is doing is he's feeling out of control about the situation with his fiance, but it, he was, it says he was a righteous person, a righteous man, so he didn't, want to off, he didn't want to disgrace her, so he figured out a quiet way to divorce her, to undo his commitment to her. He had his own plan. He was, what was he doing? He was taking control of an out-of-control situation. And then he has a dream. And the angel comes and speaks to him and says, don't be afraid to be out of control. (laughs) Don't be afraid of the messiness of this situation. Don't be afraid of what's going on. God's up to something. Just don't be, just, just trust God. Have faith. Let God lead you. Because this is, God is up to something. God's doing something in this out of control situation for you. And so he wakes up and he continues and he takes her as wife and they go on and we know that ultimately arrives the birth of Jesus. So when he felt out of control, notice he instantly wanted to take control and he had to learn to listen to God and to trust God in the messiness and out of control things. But you and I, what do we do when we feel out of control? We try and either take control or We spend money or we do something to make ourselves feel better about it rather than maybe giving our trust to God and our faith to God. It's interesting because in the two names that are offered about Jesus, actually there are two names that are offered in this text about who Jesus is. The first one is Matthew verse 21, in chapter 1 verse 21, she says, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save people from their sins. Now, the the term, the name Jesus was a Greek uh, version of the word of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. And here it is specifically explained that he came to save people from their sins, right? That that he came to, so that we're no longer captive to our desires, so that we're no longer captive to our sins, so that we're no longer captive to these things that sometimes control us when we feel out of control. How often do you and I turn to desires when we feel out of control? Like spending or feeling better, right? We want to make ourselves feel better, so we turn to those desires to fill us up again when we feel like life is out of control. It's interesting because 1 Timothy 6.10 says this, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. That money is, is tied to some of our sin, that that sin, that actually Jesus came to free us from this. Jesus came to free us from this consumerism. Think about that. And this spending and all these things. That Jesus was actually saying that this, this stuff can hold you captive. And I've come to free you from that. I'm actually come to offer you comfort and joy that that will never bring you. That you will never receive from that. Have you ever noticed December 26th, how you feel? How do you feel on December 26th? Hopefully still good, right? I remember, though, growing up, especially and as a kid and actually even sometimes as an adult, I feel kind of down on December 26th. All the stuff's over. All the gifts have been given, right? Because I've been looking forward to that stuff to fill me, to give me joy, rather than Christ. That's kind of the switch we do. 
That's what we do. We depend upon stuff rather than God. The other name here is actually from the prophet Isaiah, and it's mentioned in verse 23. It says, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Isaiah spoke these words, this prophecy, to King Ahaz. And King Ahaz was fearful because two other kings were coming. He was afraid he, that, that he was going, their nation was going to be attacked by these two other kings. So he was fearful and he was afraid. And so Isaiah, the prophet, comes to him and says, don't be afraid. Sound familiar? Don't be afraid. The virgin will give birth to a son and you will name him, his name will be called Emmanuel, which will be a reminder to you, Ahaz, that even though you're afraid, God is with you. God is with you, Ahaz. You know that God is always with you? No matter what's going on in your life, no matter how messy life gets, no matter how out of control you feel at times, guess what? Emmanuel. God with us. You know, I think of God is oftentimes with us in the messiness, in the out of control times, the times of our lives when things don't all fit together just nicely and neatly into our boxes. You know, if you read the genealogy of Matthew, you see that the gospel writer is not afraid of the messiness of the genealogy. We didn't read that today. But in chapter 1 is a whole genealogy leading up to Joseph. If you read that genealogy, there's some messy moments in that genealogy. And I think, though, it's all saying that God's still at work, (laughs) even in the parts that don't make sense to us. What is the messiness? Well, some call it messiness. I would call it something else. But there are actually four women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. I'll tell you why it feels a little messy. First of all, there's Tamar. Tamar disguised herself as a prostitute to get pregnant by Judah because Judah had promised her uh, a husband and he did not fulfill his promise to her and two sons previous had already died and he promised his third son to her to care for her and the family and he never fulfilled his promise. So she goes through this this, 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 this episode is found in Genesis 38. But what I find interesting is messy as that situation seems to us, that at the end of that story, Judah says to Tamar this, you are more righteous than I. You are more righteous than I because I did not keep my promise to you. And so it feels messy, doesn't it? But that's part of the lineage of Joseph, the father of Jesus. That's part of the lineage. It's a little messy, right? Then there's Rahab, the prostitute who hid spies. When the Israelites attacked Jericho, she hid them and then protected them and then let them escape out a window. And then later they rescued her from the battle of Jericho and her family and her household. She ends up marrying an Israelite who is then becomes a part of the lineage of Joseph, who's the father of Jesus. It's a little messy, isn't it? Or then there's Ruth, not as messy. But she was a Moabite. She wasn't, even, she wasn't an Israelite. She was a Moabite woman who stayed by her 
mother-in-law, Naomi, and said, I'm going to stay committed to you even though you can't provide me a son to marry. I'm going to stay with you. I'm going to stay committed to you. I'm going to stay faithful to you even though I don't know how God's going to work all this out. And later, Boaz is provided as a husband, and Boaz becomes her husband, and they have a son, and that becomes part of the lineage, the genealogy of Joseph, the father of Jesus wasn't real clear at the time. It was kind of messy. And then one other one. Her name actually isn't mentioned in the genealogy because it's messy. They don't list David and Bathsheba. They list her as the wife of Uriah. If you remember that story, David lusts after Bathsheba and calls her to his castle, so to speak, his, uh, his house, the royal household. And it's interesting because it's out of that that King Solomon is born. But I think it's interesting that the biblical witness is that she is the wife of Uriah. The wife of Uriah. That's messy. That's messy. What I love about the gospel writer is that the gospel writer is not afraid of the messiness of the genealogy. Not afraid to put in the hard parts, which to me speaks to the integrity of the scripture, the authenticity of the scripture, because during that time period, it would have been better to leave that stuff out, to just paint the good stuff in, to just tell the good parts and the highlights and the best parts. But that's not what happens. That's to me why I believe in the authenticity and the authority of the scriptures is because it tells it like it is. Messy. Not always clean cut. Not always fit nicely into the boxes. But yet, I would suggest to you that Tamar was righteous, Rahab was loyal, Ruth was faithful, and the wife of Uriah was true. So all these things that are leading to the birth of Christ get a little messy. And I, what I love about the gospel writer as well is that he, the gospel writer, Matthew, he ends the gospel with these words. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. God with us. No matter what happens between chapter 1 and the last chapter of our lives, God is with us. No matter what happens from the first generation to the last generation, God is with us. Emmanuel. That's what it's about. God has not abandoned us. God has not left us. So the question as we think about this idea that God is with us and why we keep turning to other things, particularly spending and consumerism to fulfill us, my question is, what makes us exchange presence for God's presence? A little pun there. Just a little, that, that's, a, that's polite laughter. That's not, you know. <laughs> I got to work, I'll work on it, sorry. I'll work on it. So notice that, that we exchange gifts, presents, 
and we forget that it's all about God's presence in our lives, that God is with us. And that can only be in a relationship with God. It can't happen just through the exchange of circumstantial gifts that give us fleeting happiness, that don't really give us comfort and joy. God's presence brings comfort and joy in the midst of the messiness of life. That's what we're longing for, I think. So I'm going to challenge you this season, along with our Advent theme this morning, which is spend less. I want to challenge you this season to spend less. Don't you wish you had this a week ago? <laughs> Two weeks ago? I know I've already spent more than I should have. But I would say to you that this spend less is about more of God in our lives, more of God's presence in our lives. And I think when we spend less and we turn less to the consumerism of the season, when we depend less upon the getting and the receiving and the consuming of the season, will lead us more to God's presence, that we'll be able to get more in touch with God with us in this season and start to look at other things where we can see God in the midst of it. You know, I think one of the things we could cut out is the obligatory gift giving. If you want to look at one way to spend less, look at the obligatory gifts that we give, right? You know, how many people right now have someone they're going to buy a gift for and you don't know what to get them? feel like you're obligated to buy them a gift. Does anybody have that? Not, I, I assumed everybody had it. Maybe you're better than me. But you know, those people, I think the fruitcake was actually the first obligatory gift. <laughs> I think somebody was sitting around and thinking, you know, what could I give them? I don't know what to give them. I'll make a fruitcake, right? You know? The, the first obligatory gift that was ever created, I think, was the fruitcake. Now, by the way, as you know, you can now tell I'm biased against fruitcake. I'm not a big fruitcake fan, but I thought, hey, somebody came up with that idea, probably because they didn't know what to give somebody. But the other thing you could do to spend less is you could actually make something to give to somebody. So you could, use, you could spend less money by creating something, making something that you could give away to other people. And you would actually probably cost you less. I know one year, one of the things I like to do is I like to do nature photography. So what I did was I took some of the photos and I went on, um, uh, no marketing here, Snapfish. And, um, and they always have this 70% off thing. And I use that 70% off thing to buy cards in bulk. And I make note cards for people. And it's photos that I've taken throughout the year or something that I've taken a picture of. And, I, and then I bundle them into different packs and so I actually spend less on these gifts, and I give them away to people, and people seem to really appreciate them, or they're just being really nice. <laughs> but I think it's also a little bit more meaningful for them and for me because I did that in that season, and I've also spent less money. The other thing that we can do that we have done as a family is give alternative gifts. There are a lot of alternative gift catalogs out there where I can give a gift in honor of somebody. So instead of me going buying a shirt for somebody that doesn't fit them and then they have to go back on December 26th and return the shirt and they didn't really like it anyway and it didn't fit them and then they're having to hassle with all that, I could just give them the gift that says I'm helping someone in need, which is back to St. Nicholas, <laughs> giving to those in need. So we could offer alternative gifts. But let me share one more idea with you. Because the gift that we're talking about is really about God with us. It's about relationship. 
how do we be in relationship with each other? How do we offer our relationship with God that God is with us? And how do we express that relationship, our relationship with God to other people? How do we bring God's presence into our lives and into our relationships? Well, I'm going to share with you a something called Daily Gifts by Charles Swindoll, Chuck Swindoll. Anybody remember that guy? These are things, I shared this with the staff, and they really liked it, so they're my pilot group. So I thought I'd share this with you. All these, none of these gifts will cost you money or very little money. You ready? And they're all relational gifts. The first one is this. Mend a quarrel. Mend a quarrel. Seek out a forgotten friend. Dismiss suspicion. Write a long overdue love note. Hug someone tightly and whisper, I love you. Forgive an enemy. Be gentle and patient with an angry person. Express appreciation. Gladden the heart of a child. Find the time to keep a promise. Make or bake something for someone else anonymously. Release a grudge. Listen. Speak kindly to a stranger. Enter into another's sorrow. Smile. Laugh a little. Laugh a little more. Take a walk with a friend. Kneel down and pet a dog. Read a poem or two to your mate or friend. Lessen your demands on others. Play some beautiful music during the evening meal. Apologize if you were wrong. Turn off the television and talk. Treat someone to ice cream, an ice cream cone. Yogurt would also be fine. Do the dishes for your family. Pray for someone who helped you when you were hurt. Fix breakfast on Saturday morning. Give a soft answer even though you feel strongly. Encourage an older person. Point out one thing you appreciate most about someone you work with or live near. Offer to babysit for a weary mother. Give your teacher a break. Be especially cooperative. And let's make Christmas one long, extended gift of ourselves to others, unselfishly, without announcement or obligation or reservation or hypocrisy. Isn't this Christianity? Isn't this what God did in Jesus Christ? Isn't this what it means that God is with us? Let's pray together.